I'm just back from a trip to New Mexico where I mainly went to teach a retreat at this wonderful retreat center called Vallecitos. It's a, a, in, a, a ranch in an inn holding in the middle of the Carson National Forest, about 9,000 feet in the mountains above Taos. It's the end of a long dirt road. It takes quite a while to get there. It's totally off the grid, solar-powered, outhouses, etc., just a wonderful place to practice because you're out in the middle of nature, um, beautiful mountains and forests and rivers and meadows, but uh, also some of the comforts of home, not all of them, but some of them. But uh, it was just delightful to be there and support people practicing out in nature in that way. But um, before we started the retreat, we took a few days just to explore the area. We drove out of Albuquerque um, out into the desert to these beautiful mesas that are out there. And one of the striking things, uh, places that we visited is called Akama. So uh, the uh, English word for it is the Sky Village. And it's a pueblo that's built on top of one of these amazing mesas that just soar out of the desert in these steep cliffs that rise up out and people had built this village on top of these cliffs, uh, this little plateau up there. It's said to be the longest continually inhabited community in the United States. They've been there for hundreds of years. And you can only go up to the village if you uh, go on a guided tour led by one of the people of the tribe, the Akama tribe. So we did that, got in a little van and were driven up um, to the top of the mesa. And uh, our guide was called Turtle. And he made it very clear to tell us this is not an Indian name, but somehow a nickname that he'd been given. He didn't explain why. He was a little roundish, but I don't know if that's the reason he was called Turtle, but he was called Turtle. And he really gave us a sense of his culture and the practices of his people. He talked about the fact that his religion, the practices that they do, stress harmony and balance, and that every day they pray for everyone in the world. And he said, now that we've met you, now that I've met you, I know a little bit more who I'm praying for, so I feel happy. And I thought that was just such a sweet expression of metta, of expanding the boundaries of who we care for to include everyone, and it includes you, and you, and you, and now I'm going to be praying for you. Or he was already praying for us, but just now he knows what we look like. So this is really what metta can do as we develop it. But another powerful thing that he said was, as he was speaking to us, we were actually seated in this large uh, mission-style church, very old church, stucco walls. I mean, its ceiling was probably not much lower than this one. Huge beams, rafters, uh, dirt floor, quite, you know, longer than this building, longer than this hall, um, very simply furnished And he told us the story of the church. He said that after the Spanish conquered his tribe, and there was a whole story about that and how how terrible that was for them, um, they basically enslaved the people and forced them to build the church. There was a mountain we could see in the distance 50 miles away, and they had to go to that mountain because that was the only place there were big enough trees and carry these huge beams back to the mesa and build the church basically as, as slaves to the Spanish. But Turtle said, we've forgiven them. We don't hold a grudge 
Many of us still practice the religion that we were taught by these people, a, a Catholics, or practice some blend. And really, in our expression of our religion, we don't want to hold them separate. When we pray for everyone, we include those people as well that were, were, did us so much harm, that was the source of so much suffering. So in saying this, I don't certainly want to say that, oh, we need to forgive everyone who's hurt us. Sometimes we're not ready to forgive, and it certainly doesn't mean we condone actions that were harmful or unskillful. But it was just a pointer to me of the power of letting go, of the power of forgiveness. And we'll actually do the practice of forgiveness tomorrow because it's such an important part of this practice. If we're holding on to grievances, if we're holding on to this sense of I'm suffering because they did me wrong, um, we'll continue to suffer. That suffering will be um, solidified. So it was just a beautiful expression of that capacity of the heart to feel the pain of the hurt that was done, but somehow transcend it and find a way to forgiveness and to healing. But to do that, we have to let go of these barriers that we build. And this is the question that we're going to be asking of ourselves again and again during this retreat. What would it take to let down those barriers? Why are those barriers there? Where are those barriers? How do we feel them? What would it take to let them down so that our metta could be more inclusive, more caring, more expansive? Because we build these barriers as a protection. Many of us build them right around ourselves so that we don't get hurt. It's like this protection from the the wounds, the suffering, the difficulties of our life. Sometimes they're a little bigger and they're just around the people we care for, those we know. But in metta practice, and as Turtle was pointing to, there's a possibility of not really having a sense of a barrier between self and other. And that this sense of caring can really expand and be inclusive and be deep. This is the possibility. If you look at the nature of barriers, they exist only to be breached. This is the history of humanity. All of the walled towns we've, you can see in Europe or you know, the Great Wall of China or Hadrian's Wall have all, sooner or later, fallen into decrepitude, being broken, being invaded across, or just the town itself grows too large for the barrier that was created. This is the very nature of, as soon as we put up something rigid, it gets pressed, it gets stressed. And we can feel that as we do this practice. The pain of the barriers that we've created and the the possibility of lowering them in whatever way we can, because we see they no longer serve us. Perhaps they were there for a reason. We needed that protection or we needed to feel a sense of closeness to a certain group of people. But as we sit here today, my sense is for most of us, really realizing it doesn't work that well to try and hold others as separate or different, that actually true happiness comes from a a, a degree a huge degree of openness and caring to all beings. And so that's the intention of this practice, to keep showing where what we feel are the limits, the stories we tell ourselves about the limits to our capacity to care 
and to stretch that, to actually expand that capacity. And it's so inspiring to have a hundred people here with that intention to expand their capacity to care, to actually stretch those barriers and boundaries that we've created. And so hopefully you've got a sense of that. Even today, as difficult as today was probably for most of you, and having been on a lot of retreats, I know the first day of retreat is really hard. It was pretty hard at times, wasn't it? It's a little hot, and then you're tired, and you're sleepy, and you're restless. And metta practice is so powerful because it works on so many different levels. Obviously, the body is uh, impacted by doing this practice so intensively. I mean, it's kind of like you were couch potatoes and someone said, okay, tomorrow you run a marathon. You know, you used to sit maybe 20 minutes a day or 15 or even if it was 40 you know, perhaps not every day, I'm sure you didn't get up at, you know, 5.40 and start meditating and sit and walk for the rest of your day. I mean, we don't tend to do that on our own. We do it on retreat. And so we can feel stressed by that, challenged by that. So the body is stressed. It just aches and it's uncomfortable and we haven't figured out how to sit and the back aches a little and there's just that sense of dullness in the body. And then the mind goes on its usual rants of wanting and not wanting and chattering about this and that, this incessant uh, stream of narrating and commenting that most of us uh, are familiar with. And then we feel the pain of a heart that's closed, that isn't open, that actually has these judgments and ideas about ourselves and our potential for feeling metta. And so we can literally feel that as a, as a physical sensation, this sense of the heart that's closed. So metta is really working on all those levels. That's why it can feel so challenging at times, why we can be exhausted at times. I mean, you're just sitting and walking. It's not like you are running a marathon, but it's exhausting, right, to, to keep this practice going. And so the first day, for those of you who've been on retreat before, you know that it's difficult if it's your first retreat. Just really understand this is the way it is for most people, if not everyone. It's really challenging. The only thing we can guarantee is it will change. Hopefully it'll get better, but we can't guarantee that. But we know it'll change. Tomorrow will be different. And even if it's harder, it'll be harder in a different way. Because... Again, this is not, you know, we've said this already, coming on a retreat like this, it sounds like a nice idea. Oh, metta, I'll spend all day just wishing well to myself and other. You know, how hard can that be? Well, you've found out how hard that can be. And I don't think I've been on a retreat yet where I haven't at some point had the thought, why did I think this was a good idea? You know, what was I thinking when I, you know, our idea of what the retreat is and here's the reality be challenging, challenging in all these different ways. So really important to remember why we're doing this practice, this potential, this possibility of really expanding our capacity to care. And not just that that capacity expanded outwards, you know, to include everyone, but expanding to include ourselves. And that's so radical. That's what is really the powerful gift that this practice can bring is really to begin deeply caring, appreciating ourselves. So everyone here will 
bring something different to the practice, we'll do the practice slightly differently, and we'll get different things out of this practice. It's one of the wonderful things about the way these kinds of retreats are structured. They're structured to enable everyone here to be on their own journey, to develop the practice in the way that best serves them. And it's kind of a wild ride, metta practice. Everyone here will go on this amazing journey. It's going to be a a wilder ride than the most exciting uh, roller coaster you've been on. You know, just the ups and downs of the emotional highs and lows that we go on on a retreat like this because metta really works at that level. The level of the emotions, the level of the heart, the level of our sense of ourselves. It's directly pointing us again and again to these basic um, insights or intuitions about ourselves and how we relate to the world. So it's always powerful. It's just we can never know exactly how it's going to be powerful or what it's going to happen. So we cultivate metta or loving kindness. We spend, we spend a whole day today just having the intention to wish well to ourselves, to our benefactor. Just compare that to what your normal day looks like. What are you normally cultivating in a day of work or even on a weekend? Most of us, again, we're lost in this tide of thinking and planning and worrying and regretting and rushing from here to there and, you know, having a sense. Someone told me about this strong drive that many of us have called FOMO. Some of you probably know it. Fear of missing out. It's like, oh, I've got to keep rushing around because something's happening, you know, somewhere else. And if I'm not there, I'm not getting it or I'm not, you know, hearing the latest song or going to the latest movie. So we can be driven by that, this sense of having to do. And to to be on retreat is such an opposite experience. The practice is in some ways quite complicated. You know, there's the phrases and a visual image and a felt sense and just the energy that it takes to keep it going. But it is collecting the mind around this one thing the practice of metta. We're really shifting our dynamic from our usual patterns. I read this article recently in the New York Times. It's very similar to a number that have been published, but it was, again, just helpful to reframe or get a new take on what this author was, uh, Tim Crider, called the busy trap. This was in the New York Times. He said, if you live in America in the 21st century, you've probably, had to elis- you've probably had to listen to a lot of people tell you how busy they are. It's become the default response when you ask anyone how they're doing. Busy, so busy, crazy busy. Recognize yourself? It's pretty obvious. It's pretty obviously a boast diagnosed as a complaint. And the stock response is a kind of congratulations. That's a good problem to have, or better than the opposite. Notice it it isn't generally people pulling back-to-back shifts in the ICU or commuting by bus to three minimum-wage jobs who tell you how busy they are. What those people are is not busy but tired, exhausted, 
dead on their feet, it's almost always people whose lamented busyness is purely self-imposed work and obligations they've taken on voluntarily, classes and activities they've encouraged their kids to participate in. They're busy because of their own ambition or drive or anxiety, because they're addicted to busyness and dread what they might face in its absence. He goes on to say, busyness serves as a kind of existential reassurance, a hedge against emptiness. Obviously, your life cannot possibly be silly or trivial or meaningless if you are so busy, completely booked, in demand every hour of the day. It's kind of true, isn't it? We we get obsessed with busyness. It's a defense against being with ourselves or looking at really what our values are in our life and what we're cultivating. He goes on to talk about a friend of his who got so tired of that kind of life that she moved to the south of, south of France, and I think she was a writer or editor of some kind. She could continue her work there. And she said her life changed so dramatically. She goes out to cafes in the evening, has a group of friends she sees regularly, has time to reflect and, and hike and be social. She said, uh, she said she once ruefully summarized dating in New York. Everyone's too busy and everyone thinks they can do better. And she said what she had mistakenly assumed was her personality, driven, cranky, anxious and sad, turned out to be a deformative effect of her environment. Again, you know, hopefully you're not seeing yourself completely in that, but I think all of us can relate a little to this sense of the drivenness that we can get lost in in our lives, this sense of having to always do more or better or faster or, or uh, broader, or whatever it is that we're comparing ourselves to, and that we are shaped by that. And what we think, as this woman said, what we think is our personality or the only way to respond to this environment is with crankiness or tiredness or exhaustion or sleeplessness. It's actually our environment, our decisions, our choices that are forming those experiences that we think are our character. Here, we're taking the opposite approach we're learning how not to be busy, right? I mean, even though, yes, the schedule's kind of full, but it's a lot of doing the same thing. I was going to say a lot of doing nothing. It's not doing nothing, but it's certainly not being productive in the way we normally think of it. You know, how many emails can you answer? How many meetings can you go to? How many, you know, X's can you accomplish in a day? Well, maybe how many phrases, but who's counting? We don't want you to count. (laughs) We want you actually to forget any sense of gaining anything in this practice Um, and to really to do it for its own sake, to really see that here your only responsibility is to develop kindness towards yourself and to others. That's a radical shift, isn't it? to what we normally spend our day doing. Most of the time, we're lost in our internal chatter and the story of me. What does it say about me? What do I need to do next? What are they thinking about me? You know, what's the problem with me? What's great about me? What's terrible about me? The story of me. And here, yes, even though we are encouraging you 
to do metta for yourself, it's not to tell yourself a story or to use that to judge yourself or evaluate how you're doing, but to actually reprogram so that the story or the inner, inner voice is basically saying, how are you doing? Hope you're okay. You know, how can I help, basically? How can we make this feel a little better? How can we do this a little kinder or with more ease or relaxation? This is a radical shift. This is the reprogramming. I mean, we don't put it in the write-ups, but basically we're brainwashing you or you're brainwashing yourself. And you're shifting from this story that says not good enough, never enough, whatever it is, internal or external, to saying, okay, yes, accepting. It's a huge shift for most of us to take, and it's such an important one. I mean, out of this sense of okayness, our spiritual path can really develop and deepen. But we have to be willing to do this work, to make this shift. The Dalai Lama says, we all have the same human mind. Each and every one of us has the same potential. Our surroundings and so forth are important, but the nature of mind itself is more important. To live a happy and joyful life, we must take care of our minds. He means we must notice the kinds of thoughts and attitudes that we dwell on in our minds and really not accept that being frustrated and exhausted and anxious and bitter is a natural state of affairs. It isn't. We actually have the capacity to change that and to shift our internal landscape so that the external landscape also shifts, that we, through that we change our values and how we relate to our experience. This is the intention of this practice through this repetition of the phrases over and over again. And I know at times it can seem kind of inane. You've probably even today had, just as James said this morning, haven't I already said this? You know, how many times do I need to say this to have it work? Or what's the point of saying this over and over again? But it is this kind of reframing and reprogramming that really does work. We wouldn't be teaching it if it didn't work. It's just as simple as that. So we use these phrases, they're the foundation of our practice, and we say them over and over again. We've said a few times, it's helpful to find the right phrases, to, to have ones that work for you. But I, the way I look at the phrases is I want to come up with a set of phrases that can work for any category of being, because we'll be doing that. We'll be going through these different categories of beings and gradually expanding the field of the metta. And I want to be able to settle on a set of phrases that I can use for all those different categories, for the people who are dear to me, for non-humans, for animals, for people I don't know, for beings I can't see. So they need to be somewhat universal, somewhat kind of generic, Um, uh, applying in all these different ways to different people. So this is the center of the practice, 
to find phrases that work, but they don't have to be the perfect phrases. In fact, there aren't perfect phrases. You know, again, it's that FOMA, fear of missing out. Oh, if only I had the perfect phrase, then this would really work. And if I tweak this here, or it's a little shorter or a little longer, that's just crazy making. You can always have this sense of something better out there that some, everyone else is trilling away on these perfect phrases and you're still stumbling trying to remember the first line of your set of phrases. So don't go crazy with that. You really want to find a balance between the creativity of the practice where you really do have it work and connect for you in a very individual way and just trusting the form that's being created, you know, that's worked for these thousands of years for, for so many people. So it's a balancing act. It's the middle way that we're always talking about. So as we settle on these phrases and start to develop them, start to repeat them over and over again, there comes this point where they, it actually becomes relatively easy or effortless to repeat them. This is when the concentration aspect of the practice can really start to develop. So we said this is a concentration practice. It's one of the main ways that we teach deep states of concentration through this repetition of the phrases. Concentration is another whole aspect of the metta. We want to be doing the practice for the opening of the heart. We have to continually come back to that intention. But the concentration is a kind of added bonus. I consider it a two-for-one kind of deal, where as well as the opening of the heart, there is this potential for really deepening in our experience and accessibility of concentration. And that has its own... um, benefit, its own development of practice. Now, a week is a short time to develop concentration. For most people, you'll only perhaps get a little taste of what it's like to have the phrases becoming in that way, have the mind get really collected about them. But I think everyone can increase their capacity in this way. All of us can have a sense, even if it's just a taste, of what it's like when the mind really settles and steadies, and there's not that sense of agitation or restlessness where the hindrances aren't so um, dominant. To do this takes a number of qualities that we'll be speaking about again and again. One is renunciation, that we really need to be willing to say not now or to give up the distractions that there are, even in as simple an environment as this. I mean, the day that we started to get cell phone reception here, it was like, oh no, you know, it's all over. People can just have their cell phones and get all of their emails or downloads or Twitter or whatever it is. Not helpful, really not helpful for developing this practice. And so... a commitment to saying, I'm, I'm not going to do that. I'm really going to drop into being here. So it's both a renunciation of distraction and of busyness and of, you know, the mind just going here and there. The saying the not now. It doesn't ma- mean never. It just means not now. And then a surrendering. Surrendering to the schedule, to the practice, to the form. Just surrendering. You know, the only way you will know if this practice works is if you give yourself to it. 
Just like anything, you get out of it what you put in. And if there's a sense of not quite committing, of second guessing, or a little bit of this and a little bit of that, going out or whatever it is you might find, you know, just multiple trips to the dining room and 10 cups of tea in a day, that's a distraction at times. Sometimes we need to do that. But to really sense that this simplicity of practice, simplicity of your choices through the day, really helpful. So the renunciation also includes just accepting the conditions that are here. They're not perfect. They never will be. The food won't be perfect. The teachers won't be perfect, I'm afraid to tell you. Um, You know, your room is probably not perfect. The temperature may not be perfect. Our practice really is, can we accept that? It's good enough. It's certainly good enough to practice. In fact, the secret is it's perfect for practice. Whatever the conditions are, it's perfect to practice, to practice metta and to practice mindfulness. And so for me, doing this practice intensively of metta and deepening concentration had a huge effect on the way I related to myself and my mindfulness practice, my practice of vipassana. It really showed me the potential for a concentrated mind and, of course, the heart opening that was there was, was just life-changing. Um, I, I was so taken with metta practice and, and all of the Brahma-vihara practices that for about 10 years, that's mainly what I did in my daily practice, in my retreat practice. Long retreats of cultivating metta and compassion and mudita and equanimity. Really valuable but not easy. And part of the power of the metta, so there's the concentration side that's powerful, is the purification side. And again, I don't know how much we explain this in the write-ups. This is a purification practice. And what we mean by that is you will get purified. I don't know if you get a sense of what we mean by that, but it means difficult stuff will come up and you will have the opportunity and perhaps the capacity to be with that in a way that transforms it, transforms your relationship to it. So the fact that difficulties come up in this practice isn't a sign that it's going wrong, it's actually a sign that it's going right, that actually it's working. So just like the question this morning, if you're saying, may I be happy or may I feel safe, and the mind is going, I'm not happy, I'm grumpy, or I'm angry, or I'm sad, or I'm lonely. Our willingness to work with that, to work skillfully with that, and we'll talk more about how to do that in the instructions and the groups and other Dharma talks, our willingness to be with those difficulties and to hold them in the space of metta is this process of transformation, is what will give us the potential to transform our relationship to those difficulties and really perhaps radically transform them, really free us in some way from those difficulties. This is the potential of this practice, but it requires staying connected, staying engaged and being willing to be there when it is difficult because it will be. We don't know yet how, but challenges will come of the mind, the heart, the body. This is the nature So we have to kind of trust this practice. This is hard if you're new to it. 
Many people here have done this practice before and so have a sense of its power. But if you're new or relatively new to the practice, it really does take a kind of blind faith that it works, that putting this effort in will have a result. Because you won't always feel metta. It's not like there's a metta switch. We just turn it on and great, you know, off we go, la-di-da, you know, may I be happy. We have to keep coming back to this intention, to kindness. We won't always feel metta. It's really important to recognize that. On another metta retreat I was teaching, one of the yogis said, said, you know, I realized it made it so much easier. Even if I was doing something I absolutely loved from 6 in the morning till 9.30 at night, I'd get tired of it. Why should it be any different with this? And it's true. You know, any time you set such a clear intention to do one particular thing, over and over again, the mind is going to resist. It's going to rebel. It's going to come up with all of these stories and excuses and and restlessness and agitation. So we have to just really trust the practice and find this balance of effort. It does take some effort to keep saying the phrases, but it doesn't have to feel like a struggle. It doesn't have to feel like it's, you know, it's, it's a real battle to do this. So finding this balance of effort and just recognizing, as I said in my instructions earlier today, that to have this kind of foundation practice where you're just saying the phrases, even if you feel you don't mean them, is actually okay. And it's more than okay. It's fine. And it's what we need to do because it's inevitable that we'll have periods like that. As I said, we can't just turn on the meta switch and feel kindness and love for the rest of the week or the rest of our life. doesn't happen. But just to have the willingness to keep coming back and saying them. The way we talk about it is it's like planting seeds. You know, some seeds fall on barren ground, some on fertile ground, some get watered, some don't get watered, some sprout, some don't sprout. We can't know when we plant them what will happen. All we can do is keep creating the right conditions and then trusting that. And so even if it feels that there's not the heartfulness there, that's okay. Just be willing to keep saying the phrases. And at different times in different ways, you'll find ways to bring in more of a sense of connection. My friend Carol Wilson, who I often teach with, um, has this great line. She just tosses these out, but I've always remembered. She says, fake matter is better than real aversion any day. So, you know, and there's that line, fake it until you make it. Really trust that. You know, saying the phrases, even if there's this little voice going, you're not really being kind, or you don't really mean that, or who are you kidding? The moment of you saying a phrase of metta is a moment of reprogramming, is a moment of shifting. And all we have to do is just more moments of that kind of programming and inevitably the shift will happen. We really have to start to trust that and start to see the power of metta to really balance the tendencies of mind that go into difficulty. And on on Vipassana retreats, we teach metta so to give people a tool to work with the difficulties of mind and heart we call the hindrances of, of greed, aversion, sleepiness, restlessness, or doubt, or the kalesas, these torments of mind, of greed, aversion, and delusion. Metta is an antidote 
to those tendencies of mind that we experience. So here we have the opportunity to have a whole week to practice cultivating this beautiful antidote, this beautiful balancing factor of mind to the tendency that we have these, these, these um, habits of mind that cause our suffering. It's said that metta is the best antidote to aversion, that aversion cannot coexist in a mind that's filled with metta. And it just makes sense that if we're cultivating kindness and love, that aversion can't be there at the same time. Of course, you probably see this dance that you'll do, you know, metta-aversion, metta-aversion, metta-aversion. But if we keep inclining towards the metta, it will win out. It just depends on the energy that we give it. So it's said classically to be uh, the antidote to aversion, but I think it works on all of these tendencies of mind. It works on the tendency to greed, to wanting, to desire, because metta is this open-handed caring. Metta says, how are you doing? You know, how can I care for you? How can my heart open and, and be connected? So it works on that tendency of, of, towards greed or grasping. And it certainly works on the tendency to delusion, the third of the kalesas or torments of mind, because we start to see the interconnectedness of everything, of all of us. That we're not separate, uh, isolated selves, but actually there's this universal field that we do this dance in and that our practice of metta can really open us up to that sense of connection. So I hope you start to feel that in your practice. When things get difficult, the best antidote or response is to continue doing the metta practice. Now at times, it's just too difficult, and we'll talk more about this, and you want to have other responses. You know, it's fine to go back to mindfulness or to get spacious or uh, have some other options. But metta is this wonderful response to What's difficult? Actually, all of the Brahma-viharas, um, there are f- metta is the first of the four Brahma-viharas. Metta, loving-kindness, um, karuna, compassion, mudita, um, empathetic joy, and upeka, equanimity. Each of them, any of them, could be considered the appropriate response to any situation you found yourself in. If it's one of suffering, it's compassion, joy, you know, equanimity, metta is the caring. That's why they're so wonderful. And why we consider metta to be the foundation practice, why we emphasize the metta, we'll be teaching each of these other Brahma-viharas in the coming days because they all have something to add to this uh, uh, atmosphere of the heart, to this cultivation of beautiful qualities of mind. They all have a different, a different facet of this heart that cares. But metta is the foundation one. Actually, this word Brahma-vihara, these are the four Brahma-viharas, literally is translated as heavenly abodes or abode of the god, home of the gods. It's considered the most sublime place we as human beings can access and experience these heavenly um, experiences of love and connection and compassion and joy. 
each one of them, as I said, is a, a different wise response to an experience. But metta has this beautiful capacity to morph into any of them. So metta is this bra- basic sense of kindness, but when that heart that's kind and caring is exposed to compassion, it immediately, sorry, is exposed to suffering, it immediately responds with compassion. When it connects with joy and someone who's doing really well, it immediately opens to a sense of joy and happiness and gladness. And equanimity needs to be woven throughout all of them, but particularly the metta, to help us stay in balance, to help us stay connected and not pushed and pulled too much by the ups and downs of the practice. So all of them are important, but metta has this sort of chameleonic nature of being able to transform into the other one. So it's why we emphasize it, why it's so helpful. And why we begin with metta for self. This is such a radical thing for many of us. So many of us live with a sense of deficiency, of being self-critical, judgmental, not good enough. And to actually begin the practice by saying, I care for myself, I value myself. Again, you may find that really challenging or difficult to say. You might say it and in the back there's this little voice again going, you know, who are you kidding? You don't really mean that or I don't know, you know. Only after the 10-point improvement program, maybe then I'll care for myself, but, you know, at the end of the week maybe, but right now, hopeless case. This is not helpful as an attitude. It's not what we need to bring to the metta. James mentioned this already, that this quote of the Buddha that says, you can search throughout the entire universe for someone who is more deserving of your love and affection than you are yourself, and that person is not to be found anywhere. You yourself, as much as anyone in the entire universe, deserves your love and affection. It's a pretty radical statement, isn't it? To say you actually deserve love and affection. The Dalai Lama will say things like, our birthright is to be happy. This is the purpose of a human life. This practice directly addresses this. It starts from this place of saying, you yourself deserve love, deserve to be happy, and need to love yourself, accept yourself, in this really deep and committed way. It really, for many of us, shifts how we relate to ourselves. And we do it just through this simple repetition of phrases, but through all of the things that I've talked about, the purification, the recognition of the difficulties, both here on retreat, but certainly in our lives, our relationships, looking at that, the places where the heart is closed, uh, through past hurts, harms that have been done, the ways we judge ourselves and haven't forgiven ourselves. This practice works on all these different levels. I always think of metta practice like this giant spotlight that someone has clicked on and it's just beaming into the innermost recesses of your heart to shine onto all of the places that you've tried to keep hidden, closed even to yourself. You've kind of forgotten they were there sometimes. Sometimes they're really large and you know they're there. But it shines this bright light. 
There's this beautiful poem by this Japanese uh, woman poet, Izumi Shibuku, from the 10th century. It just speaks to this process, this practice of metta. Watching the moon at dawn, solitary, mid-sky, I knew myself completely, no part left out. I knew myself completely, no part left out. This is the metta practice, or the possibility of the metta practice. This process that we go through, it's like uncovering the stones, overturning what's been hidden, and actually saying yes, yes, this is who I am, this is my experience, can I accept this again and again and again? No part left out of the difficult parts of ourselves, the difficult parts of our experience, our lives, our difficult relationships in work or family, the, the habits of mind that cause us suffering, the sense of limitation, shines a light on all of that. It's why this practice can be so difficult, is we sit with that. We feel that. We feel the impact of that. But the power or the brilliance of this practice is not running away or denying or avoiding, but actually turning to that and saying, can I be with this with some tenderness, with some kindness, with some care? Can I actually sit with this and say yes? and bring that level of kindness into the deepest parts of ourselves. It all begins with this intention that you came to the retreat with, to want to actually let your heart open, expand, fill, trust, develop. And this is possible. It's a retraining. It's a practice. It's why we call it practice. We practice doing it. And we start to see the benefits. I mean, perhaps even today you had a moment where you were a little kinder to yourself or to someone else. We always talk about the, just the environment here and how it supports that softening and that opening. Just really how you can feel held here. The staff is supporting you, the teachers are supporting you, the place supports you. The animals that are here, have you seen the baby deer yet? I mean, in all that freshness, the newness of life, and their mothers taking care of them so tenderly. The turkeys have had their babies. The quail have had their babies. So there's these little babies everywhere. And the beautiful thing about Spirit Rock is they're not as afraid of you as they are in any other place. Well, not any other place, but most other places because they've lived here for years and learnt that people here walk slowly and care about them. And sometimes you have to like say, all right, move along, you know. If you want to see the Spirit Rock uh, menagerie, go down to the meadow at about earlier, this time of day, as the sun is setting, and it's a deer park down there. All of the deer come because that lawn is irrigated there. They all come down, the turkeys come down, see the quail puttering through, and they're just hanging out there. And people are walking around and working and doing their thing. They're just hanging out. They have felt this sense of fearlessness that the practice here has offered them. 
a little while ago I got a card from a friend that was uh, sent from Hawaii with a Hawaiian proverb in it that goes, He ali'i ka la'i he haku na ka aloha. And it says, it means, where there is peace, love also abides. And I think that's really true. As we feel the, the peacefulness, the, the refuge that this place offers, the heart can start to trust, can start to move through the barriers that we've created and actually open to the truth of our experience, which is there is love, there is acceptance, there is kindness. All we have to do is let it out a little. On a, and, and part of the barrier is the way we're not kind to ourselves, this judging, this criticism that I've mentioned a few times. Again, on another retreat, one yogi said her mantra became, lower your standards a little and be a little more kind. You know, we have this sense not good enough ourselves or external. Lower your standards a little, be a little more kind. Sometimes that's what we have to do, surrender, let go, and practice acceptance, relaxation. Let the peace that's available here really support you. And practice metta with metta. It's sometimes, it sounds kind of obvious to say that, but so often we're doing it with this sense of forcing or judgment or pushing. Can we practice metta with metta? Can we develop this kindness with a sense of kindness to ourselves? So the big question, of course, about this practice is, does it work? And so many, you know, metta retreats, you know, you, you're going to be doing it for your friends and your family and uh, colleagues, etc. And it's very tempting to go home and say, well, did it work? You know, did you feel it? I was sending you metta all week and be kind of disappointed when they say, what are you talking about? I didn't feel anything. You really have to get that's not the point. We can't know what effect it will have on others as we spend all these hours and days wishing metta. I mean, it can have an effect. I think it can, but we can't know. And that doesn't matter so much because what we can know is the most important place it has an effect, which is here, which is our own hearts and minds, that we do have the capacity to actually expand our sense of love and acceptance and that this is the most important place for the practice to work. This is actually the only place that we have some sort of direct impact is our own hearts and minds. So yes, it does work. You wouldn't be here if it didn't work. We wouldn't keep doing these retreats if it didn't work. There wouldn't have been thousands of people who've practiced here and millions over these years who've experienced this and known that it works. And if you don't believe me and the other teachers and everyone else here and all those other practitioners, the Buddha says that it works. <laughs> so my highest authority. We'll be chanting this sutta tonight. This is the metta sutta, the description of this practice. He says, this is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. We should practice metta. Even as her mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, 
one should sustain this recollection. May all beings be happy. May all beings be free from suffering. So millions of people have practiced this practice of metta and found it life transforming, found it really shift themselves. But we can never know what the individual benefit or effect will be. And we certainly can't judge that in the middle of a retreat. You know, keep checking, is it working? Do I feel more kind? I don't know, about yesterday, about tomorrow. We can't know. We just have to trust. But we're not alone. Millions of people have walked in this path and felt the effects of this practice. At the end of uh, a meta retreat, actually it was after I got home, someone wrote me this letter who had been on the meta retreat that I'd just taught, and he said, You interviewed me at noon on the next to last day of the recent Metta retreat. It had had no impact on me up to that point, so far as I could tell, and I was disappointed. That puts it nicely. Disgruntled is perhaps a more complete description. But not long after I left the interview room, I noticed that my attitude towards my fellow retreatants had changed. Until that moment, I had formed a critical opinion of each person my eyes fell on. But now my attitude was different. I wished each of them well. When my eyes fell on someone, I would send that person my good wishes, not to say love. In short, the transformation I had hoped for, but knew I could not elicit or count on, had taken place. This mood or feeling continued for several days after the retreat. I continued to say metaphrases silently to myself as I go through my day, and I continue to feel more kindly towards others than I did before the retreat, even if I am no longer as blissed out as I was during the last 24 hours of the retreat. So we can never know. It can feel like it's not working, and then something shifts, and we see that it has worked. So just trust and surrender, and continue. This is our practice. I want to finish with a poem by Hafez that talks about this um, openness of heart where everything gets included in the field of love. It's called Today. I do not want to step so quickly over a beautiful line on God's palm as I move through Earth's marketplace today. I do not want to touch any object in this world without my eyes testifying to the truth that everything is my beloved. Something has happened to my understanding of existence that now makes my heart always full of wonder and kindness. I do not want to step so quickly over this sacred place on God's body that is right beneath your own foot as I dance with precious life today. So at the end of our talks, we just like to have a few moments of silence to let the words settle. You don't need to change your posture. It's just to come back into the silence. If anything was helpful for you, it will stay with you. You don't need to try and hold on to it. If it wasn't helpful, please just let it go. So let's just sit in silence for a moment or two.
And so I wish for you that at some moment, that moment of grace happens, whereas Hafez says, something has happened to my understanding of existence that now makes my heart always full of wonder and kindness. Thank you for your attention. We now have a bit over half an hour for walking practice, and we'll come back at 9 o'clock for a sitting where we'll do some chanting together. At the end of the evening, each day we'll chant the Metta Sutta. So the the chant sheets are outside. Just bring them in to the 9 o'clock sitting, and we'll probably make it a little bit shorter than usual because it's a long day today. So 